0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning. morning. I want to welcome all who gather here in the name of Jesus. And I want to reiterate Kelly's announcement in the video. Green Pastors, our experience at Green Pastors Church of Christ, for those of you who went, was amazing. It was, at least for me, a transformative experience. The singing, the preaching, the bad thing about those two things is that afterwards, many of our members came up to, to myself and said, Ben, why can't you preach like that? Come well, on now. <laughs> you gotta talk more during my sermon for me to preach better. You're making it a lot longer. (laughs) Or I wouldn't be surprised if uh, many of them walked up to Brett and said, why can't you lead worship like that? (laughs) And knowing Brett, he probably said, yeah, I'd love to be able to lead worship like that. (laughs) Well, for those of you who missed it, the good news is I had at least four members of the Springs come up to me afterwards and they almost, they said the exact same thing. They came up to me and said, hey, can we do this again? And I said, yes, we can and we will. So, we'll plan on it, more events where uh, we serve children and people from other communities where we worship together with different believers and we're united Especially in a world that is very divided, to have that kind of experience that sun, on Sunday was a transformative experience of unity in a world that's fairly divided. Lisa Buck is right. We are starting a new sermon series this week. You are what you love. And Lisa, I love when you get up and do the communion homily. I love the way... Uh, You bring together humor and uh, the, the Word of God and get us to think about our own lives and God and being at the table. And at the same time, I hate it because I'm fairly sure whenever you get up, everybody thinks, why can't that be the sermon for today? Rod, behave yourself. At well, least I think the same thing. But I prepared a sermon, so here we go anyway. If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. That'll be our main text for today. And let's begin, before we read, let's begin with a prayer. Will you pray with me? Father, for your word, we give you thanks. For there is no life, we have no life apart from it. So we ask for ears to hear, and we pray for hearts to follow. And God, I pray this morning for the gift of preaching. It's in the name of Jesus, amen. John chapter 1, verse 35, it says, the next day John was there again with the two, with his two disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, "Look, the Lamb of God." When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following, and he asked, "What do you want?" Andrew and John have been caught up in this whole whirlwind of the event of John the Baptist. Until John the Baptist turns their attention towards Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God. And on hearing John's proclamation, they actually turn and follow Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says to them doesn't come in the form of, Welcome! It's actually a question. And Jesus, as we, you know, read in the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of John, questions are often the way that Jesus responds to people. And so, the very first question, as He turns to the disciples, He asks them, what do you want? And it's an important question for John's Gospel. As these disciples, as the first disciples begin following him. But it's not only the first question he says to the disciples. These are the first red letter words in the entire gospel. These are the first words that John says, that John records, that Jesus says. And as we read it, as followers of Jesus, in your Bible, if you have a red letter Bible, these are the first red letters to you in the gospel of John. The question is, to the disciples and to us, what do you want? Which I think in the context of thinking about discipleship, that question, what do you want, may be the most important question concerning discipleship. Usually when we think of following Jesus, we like to ask questions like, "Well, what do you know about him?" And the disciples do know something about him. They know He's the Lamb of God, but they don't know much other than John says, "Look, the Lamb of God," and they follow. But the question, "What do you know? That's not Jesus' question. Or a question about discipleship would be a natural question. It's like, well, what do you believe?" That's a natural question for us. We ask ourselves that. What do I believe? What do you believe? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And even in the Gospel of John, it says at the end of the book that these things are written so that you may believe. Belief is a major theme in John's Gospel. But Jesus' first question is not, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? Or even maybe the first question when you meet somebody that's following you wouldn't be, what do you want? But it would be, who are you? A question of identity, right? But that's not Jesus' question. His first question is, what do you want? Because that question may reveal more about who we are than the question, who are you? Because at the very heart of of who we are, is our wants and our desires. It's not what you know. It's not what you believe. It's the question, what do you want? Because you are what you want. You are what you desire. You are what you love. And in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, above all else, right, that's that's probably a key phrase, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. In Scripture, in, in the first century world, the heart is central to the person, central to what it means to be a human being. It's not just this thing that pumps blood inside your body, but it's the thing that 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 includes your thinking, your will. But it's not just that. And one thing that I think that we've not paid enough attention to is that the heart—that's the seat of your intentions, your passions, your desires. And very early on, there was a question that came up in Christianity when they read scriptures, and the Christians, Christians tried to figure out what does it mean to be made in God's image? It's an important question, right? I asked my students this, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Is that we have similar noses and, uh, you know, eyes and our eyebrows and hair color? And they say, ah, no, that's not what we think of necessarily when we think of being made in God's image. So they begin, to think, what, what does it mean to be made in God's image? And what early Christians did is they said, well, God created a lot of things, but only we're made in God's image, human beings. So what they begin is they begin looking at animals and saying, well, God created animals and God created us, but they don't bear the image of God, but we do. So what makes us distinct? And maybe that one distinction or that distinction may be able to tell us what it means that human beings are made in God's image. And so one of the conclusions they came to is that human beings are reasonable beings. We can think. We're not just driven by instinct. We're driven by reason. And so they began to think of a human being, and this is very much a part of our culture, as thinking things. Reasoning things, brains. So much so that you've probably heard this expression from a famous philosopher, Rene Descartes, I think, therefore, I am. It is our thinking that makes us who we are. Think about how we educate kids. Now, this is not true. Things are changing these days. But think about how we traditionally educate children, right? We want to get their thinking right. We want to cram as much information into their head because if they think right about something, they'll do it correctly. Maybe. Yet we keep trying this over and over again, right? If we think right about something, we'll do something right. Or at church, it's about what you believe. And so we teach you, we try to cram information into your head so that you'll believe correctly. Now, don't come up to me after church and say, Ben, no, it's important how we think. I teach at the university. I make my paycheck teaching people how to think. Please don't come up to me afterwards and go, but Ben, it's really important what we believe. I agree with you. What you believe is really important. But I want to argue that maybe thinking or knowing and believing is not the first question we should be asking. For Augustine, who is our ancestor in faith, He says, basically, He says, God has given you reason, and we should use it. And God has given you the ability to believe, and we should believe, but you are not first a thinking thing, you are not first a believing thing. What He says you are more than anything is you are a lover. In other words, what it means to be a lover is that we are directed not by our thinking primarily. Although we like to imagine we're directed by what we think, we're not primarily directed by what we think, we're primarily directed by our desires, our longings. So instead of guard your mind for everything you do flows from it. Think of the word heart as guard your loves. Guard your longings for everything you do flows from it. It doesn't take much watching a little bit of TV to know that when you a 30-second commercial comes out, if you begin to think about us as lovers first, not just thinking things or believing beings, but as lovers first. It's not hard when you start thinking about commercials. Marketers know who you are, maybe even better than you know who you are. Because when you see a 30 second commercial, are most commercials going after your mind? Now, they may, you may say, some are going after your beliefs. But I would argue those commercials, they're going after your love. They know what is central to who you are. They know what you'll follow. They know you won't follow some logic or some belief system. They know you will follow what you desire. Think about Coke for a minute. Coke doesn't try to convince you intellectually that their product's the best. I don't know what you would say about Coke intellectually to make you think that it was worth drinking, although I enjoy Coca-Cola. But what does Coke do around Christmas? Well, some commercials are about polar bears, but what are other commercials about? Anybody remember? Santa. What in the world does Coca-Cola and Santa Claus have anything to do with each other? The answer really is nothing. But when you see Santa and those red, rosy cheeks, and you think about Christmas, for most of us, that's a narrative of these are good times. We think of gifts and family. We think of food. We think of being together. And we want to be a part of that life. And Coke draws us. It pulls us with those desires and says, here, have a Coke anytime and you can participate in the spirit of Christmas. They're selling sugared water with carbonation, yes. Yet we're pulled by it. In fact, I would say this, and not just me, others have said this, that we are more pulled by what we desire than we are pushed by our thinking. If we are honest with ourselves, we're more pulled by our loves towards things than we are pushed by our thinking towards things. You are what you love. Okay, maybe a show of hands. How many of you think one thing? How many of you have ever experienced this? And I think if you're honest, everybody will raise their hand, so that's a cue. <laughs> Don't embarrass yourself here. How many of you ever think one thing but do something different? How many of you have ever experienced, you don't have to raise your hand anymore. But if you experience, there's a gap between what you think and what you do. And you say, "I know what I should love." Like, for example, you hear, let's just an example. You hear an amazing sermon on Sunday morning. You're laughing way too much at that. (laughs) And you think, oh, I've got something for the week. I'm going to go. It's changed my thinking. It's changed the way I see. It's changed what I believe. I'm going to go out and do it all week. And by Tuesday, you're doing exactly what you've always done. Have you ever experienced that? you know, yet you continue to do, that there's a gap between what you think and what you know, what you believe, and what you do. And so, one way to think about our lives and to examine our own desires and our own hearts and our own love is not to ask yourself the question, Not to ask the self the question, what do you love? Because if I ask any of you today, what is your ultimate love? You are all good church people. And you know the right answer. You know what you should love. You know you should love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You know what you should love. But by Tuesday, you keep doing the same things. So instead of asking, just asking ourselves the question, what do you love? Instead, let's turn around and just look at our lives. What do you practice? What are your habits? And what do they tell you about what you really love? In other words, if you wanted to break down your view of, you are what you love. You might say this: that you are what you practice, and your practices are aimed towards the thing that you love the most. For Lisa, it's cake. <laughs> to which I said, "Amen to that." So you're not alone. Here's another example. I played soccer all my life. I practiced soccer. I played collegiately. I played, got the chance to play some semi-professionally. I've coached it. I, I, I go watch my kids play. We spent all day at the soccer field yesterday. There's many people that would say We're, I'm a soccer player, and that's a soccer family because we are what we practice. James Smith, who is a Christian philosopher, sorry to use that word, that's just what he is, don't tune out just yet, he actually really has something good to say. He's written a lot about how rituals and habits and practices are connected to our loves. And he talks about how our loves are aimed at what he calls visions of the good life, or what Christians might call the kingdom of God. We want the vision of the good life, so we live towards that life, and there are practices that shape us towards those ends. He says that the way that our love is aimed, shaped, and primed is through embodied practices. A vision of the good life is planted in us through embodied practices rather than deposited us intellectually and deposited into our minds intellectually. You practice your way towards visions of whatever you think the good life is. They're not just planted there by someone intellectually planting information there. And he says that our loves are more caught than they are taught. When we participate in practices, we begin to catch these desires and loves rather than just being taught what to love. Our practices aren't just something you do. Every practice you do does something to you and to, to your loves. And what he calls this, he says, "These practices that aim our loves, he says they function much like worship. And he talks about that there are all kinds of cultural liturgies in the world. There are rituals of ultimate concern that form our identity and inscribe in us a vision of the good life. This is the life that we give ourselves to and that we worship. And it actually competes with other practices and narratives to try to push them to the side so that you're fully devoted. And he uses this example. He says, kind of corny, but he says this, I like it. He says, imagine if aliens came down. They didn't know anything about human beings, and they wanted to know something about what makes you tick. So as good any anthropologist that would come and study a particular people, they were like, well, what are their religious practices? And so without knowing anything about it, he says, they come down, and they come to what looks like a cathedral, a church building that's surrounded by a sea of parking. And there are many entrances, right? The parking goes all the way around the building, and there's many entrances into the building. And there's familiarity to those who are faithful that walk in and know where they're going. But to those who are seeking, those who are new, those who are novice, they're welcomed by maybe a welcome center or a, a map that can kind of direct you to where to go and guide you through your experience. And he talks about the architecture that they see intends tends to shape your experiences. There's vaulted ceilings with windows that look to the sky. They let light in, but there's no windows that let you see the mundane world around you. There's only windows high. And so it gives us a sense of there's a, this is a transcendent place with high ceilings and light from above that blocks out the mundane world around you. But while the mundane, well, the mundane world continues to tick inside, because of the way the lighting is, it's almost as if time stands still. And you can escape the world And while the mundane clock of the outside world ticks away, this space is governed by a different liturgical calendar, draped in colors and symbols and images of many holidays and festivals and seasons. And as you walk through it, it's laid out like a medieval cathedral where there are many religious activities that can happen all at one time. It is shaped like a labyrinth that invites you to contemplate. And there are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints along the walls of the labyrinth. And we notice the icons and the images that decorate the chapel offering us pictures of the good life and images of people who who are meant to inspire us to live as they do. They offer us good news that attracts us and the gospel they're proclaiming is beauty. And so out of curiosity, we enter one of the chapels where a priest welcomes us to guide our experiences. And we begin one of the most common practices of this cathedral. It's called combing through the racks. Because we've come seeking something. And finally, once we've found what we've come looking for, we take our relic to the altar and we make our offering at the altar. Yet we don't go away empty-handed. We go away with this relic that invites us to continue practicing throughout the week this good life. It's been offered to us, this cathedral. If you haven't already figured it out, What Smith is talking about is that these aliens come down and look at the religious experience and what he's describing is the mall. The mall's not neutral. And by the way, the mall doesn't go after your brain either. The mall goes after your heart. or if I'm hitting too close at home, and I like them all, by the way. Something more close to home for us is the experience of being part of a soccer club or being at the soccer fields. And Kim and I have become very aware of this because it's a practice we do often. We've talked about it, and we want to become aware of how it's shaping Kim and I and our kids. But here's how it goes, maybe. We have rituals, right? The kids have rituals of warming up and games where they learn to love the ball at their feet and not at their hands. We form habits that allow us to play the game well. We have a community of those who love the game, players and parents. We have regular gatherings of fellowship and worship at the soccer fields. We stand, we sit, we raise our hands in praise of a goal. We lament when we get scored on. And there's often those moments at the end of the game where our our hands are clenched together, praying that they don't score or praying that we score the last goal and win the game. There's even a whole language that goes with being a part of the soccer community. You know when someone's not a part of it because you hear that parent over there and everything they shout is, boot it, boot it in the goal, boot it out. And if you know soccer, you don't boot it in the goal, you shoot it in the goal. You don't boot it, you strike the ball. But you hear these parents that you know they haven't been to much soccer because they're constantly yelling, boot it, boot it. And you just kind of go, they're visitors. (laughs) We often break bread together after games as a soccer family. We get instructions and encouragement from the coach or the team manager about who we are, what we should do, and how we should act. We give our offerings every month when the club dues are due. And we're encouraged to meet again at the next scheduled event. In fact, a few years ago, I was coaching by, with a gentleman that I, I, I dearly love, and he was, we were talking about our life, and I was sharing my life as a missionary about what I did, and I'm a Christian, and this is what I do, and he smiled at me, and he goes, Ben, we we're standing at the fields, he goes, this is my church. As I think about our life, there's a lot of similar practices. And before you think, oh, Ben, you're bashing on the mall, you're bashing about soccer. No, it's not that these things are not good. They are good, but we need to be mindful, very mindful, like seriously mindful about how they are shaping what we want, who we are. In fact, to go back to Augustine, he tells a great story to frame, maybe even what I'm talking about, about how to think about this or how we practice this. in his book, Confessions, right, which is an odd but phenomenal book because it's Augustine, Augustine's writing his personal confessions for all of you to read. How many of you would be willing to do that? So it's really quite a feat that he writes this book. He writes out his confessions that where you can read it, And I'm paraphrasing here, but basically in in the very first book, in the first chapter, he talks something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, God, you have made the world so good. There are so many good things to love. How could I love it in any good order? He affirms the goodness of God's creation and that things are worthy to be loved. And then he uses this example which this category is a famous category. It's It's a way that Augustine often talks about his own life and his own struggles. He says, you see that woman over there? She's good. God, you've made her very, very good. And God, you have made her, and she is worthy of my love. And Augustine says, and God, I am tempted to love her. Then he says, but she is not my wife. And if I don't order my love for her, it's not that she's not worthy of my love, but if I don't order my love for her, my love will not only destroy her, but it will destroy me as well. And Augustine and many ancient Christians thought about life not as thinking the right things, but ordering our desires and loves. You are lovers. They said, if we don't order our love, our love becomes disorder. Which is an interesting way to think about sin, disordered love. Christian practices of worship order our love towards God, habits of worship shape our love, our identity towards the kingdom. Rituals of worship recalibrate our loves and they aim them more fully towards God's reign and towards the way that God loves the world. And so over the course of the next few months, Brett and I and all of us will look at biblical and historical practices of Christian worship that the church is employed to shape its life, its identity, to shape its love towards God and towards what God loves. So we'll look at practices Liturgical practices of the Christian calendar, how we are ordered by time. The practice of hospitality and song, of confession of sin, of confession of belief that the, the church has confessed in creeds. Prayer, scripture and preaching, communion, giving and sending. But we'll not only look at Christian worship practices. What I want us to do is begin to think about reading our own culture, So what we're going to do is look at other practices in the world and how practices maybe like the mall or like soccer, how they intend to shape our loves and how God intends to reorient us towards Him through practices of worship in the church. For you are what you love and your habits and your rituals and your practices aim and shape So today, if you are what you love, then Jesus' question to you today is this, what do you want? What are you striving after? What are you seeking? What do you love? For you are what you love. Let's stand and sing.